Well, open your copy of God's Word and turn to Proverbs chapter 6. Proverbs chapter 6. As you're turning there, just a little word about the text tonight. We're going through Proverbs 1 through 9 uh, in a systematic fashion. That's Solomon speaking directly to his son Rehoboam, orienting him to the position of wisdom so that he would know how to rule the people well in the wake of Solomon's rule and also in spite of the, of the mistakes that Solomon made. He's very careful, he's very deliberate, and it becomes a, a paradigm, a pattern for any parent who wants to teach their children wisdom. It becomes a pattern for any discipler who wants to teach a discipler how to be wise. And as we've said over and over and over, and you'll hear it again and again, the theme of Proverbs is to be wise enough, say it with me, wise enough to know you're not wise enough. That's the position of humility. It's looking at all that we've been given by God and having a posture that I need to grow more in this area. Our text this evening is, is one that picks on an area in our lives It's very difficult. It could be one of the most pervasive problems in our culture today. It could be one of the, the deepest quicksands into which people step. And it might be one of the more subtle, acceptable sins that people can be drawn into. And it's the sin of the love of money. Solomon tackles this from a little different perspective than you might anticipate and at first reading, you may think, well, what does this have to do with me? But at a second reading, I think you're going to see it has a lot to do with all of us. Proverbs chapter 6. Proverbs 6. Let me read the first five verses for us. My son, if you have become surety, co-signed, for your neighbor, have given a pledge for a stranger... If you have been snared with the words of your mouth, have been caught with the words of your mouth, do this then, my son, and deliver yourself. Since you have come into the land hand of your neighbor, go, humble yourself, and importune your neighbor. Give no sleep to your eyes, nor slumber to your eyelids, Deliver yourself like a gazelle from the hunter's hand and like a bird from the hand of a fowler. Everyone's heard the phrase, a fool and his money are soon what? Parted. A fool and his money are soon parted. In other words, it's easy to get money from foolish people. It's difficult or unlikely that foolish people maintain their hold on their money in a wise way. You ever had this happen? I'm going to take the time to read this to you because you've no doubt, if you've had any interaction with uh, email or the internet, experienced this. Sit down, check your email, and you see one from a name you don't recognize. It's marked urgent, and the subject re uh, line reads confidential. You open it up, and this is one that I was given recently, and it sounds like this. <clears throat> Dear sir, confidential business proposal. Having consulted with my colleagues and based on the information gathered from the Nigerian Chambers of Commerce 
and industry, I have the privilege to request your assistance to transfer the sum of 47,500,000 United States dollars into your accounts. It's plural. I guess I have multiple accounts. The above sum resulted from an over-invoiced contract executed, commissioned, and paid for about five years ago by a foreign contractor. So we all know already that they're asking me to participate in something that was taking advantage of someone else. This action, however, was, uh, uh, however, intentional, and since this action, however, was intentional, and since the fund has been in suspense at the central bank of the Nigerian Apex Bank, your request, services are requested. We are now ready to transfer the funds overseas, and that is where you come in. It is important to inform you that as civil servants, we are forbidden to operate a foreign account. That is why we require your assistance. The sum will be shared as follows. 70% for us, 25% for you, and 5% for local and international expenses incidental to the transfer. The transfer is risk-free on both sides. I am an accountant with the Nigerian National Petroleum Corporation. And just in case we didn't get that, it's in parentheses, NNPC. That's really helpful. If you find this proposal acceptable, we shall require the following documents. Your banker's name, telephone number, your account number, and all fax numbers. Your private telephone and fax numbers for confidentiality and ease of communication. Your letterhead, paper stamped and signed. Alternatively, uh, alternatively uh, we will furnish you with the text of what to type in your letterhead paper along with a breakdown explaining the comprehensively what we require of you. The business will take us 30 working days to accomplish. accomplish. Please reply urgently. Best regards. I'm going to try it. Haugul Abul Arhu. Now, what, do you, what do you think when you hear that? What do you think when you open those? Well, you probably think that's not a wise thing to do. But you would not share that same opinion with thousands of people who fall for this scam every day. We've made our way to the sixth chapter of Proverbs, his, Solomon's explanation of wisdom. These people in the illustration that I just read in the email and the people here in the text before us, Suspend common sense and give out personal information to total strangers in a way that puts their financial condition in jeopardy. Proverbs 6 addresses an ancient Near Eastern scam, the equivalent of what we just read in this Nigerian email. Now, these first five verses call for giving attention to financial wisdom and also by avoiding financial stupidity. The specific topic is that of surety. There's a lot that you can read in a Bible encyclopedias and Bible dictionaries about surety. What is surety? Well, very simple. It's the practice of becoming financially responsible for the debt of another person should they not be able to pay. Let me say that again. You would become, by written contract or by verbal contract in this, in this context, you would become financially responsible for the debt of another person should they not be able to pay a loan or a debt that they're entering into. 
In modern terms, we call it co-signing for a loan. Now, immediately, people throw up their hands and they say, well, this is, is this forbidding any kind of co-signing? I, I, I don't think so, not even near. And I think there's specific instructions in here that, that says that all practices of co-signing are not evil or bad or wicked or harmful. What's going on here is way different than a parent co-signing on a, a child's first car loan. The scenario that Solomon lays out before us is doing a risky financial business deal and co-signing for a stranger, for someone you haven't vetted, someone you don't know, and someone that you should not trust. It's kind of like the Nigerian scam I just read you. Now, by looking at this scene, though, it unearths some different things in our heart that should be addressed with regard to our, our attitude, our feeling, our, our, our disposition, our values, our priorities regarding money. This example is a negative one, and so is my sermon proposition. It's how to handle your own financial foolishness. How to handle your own financial Foolishness. And let's just say this from the beginning. All of us have a resume somewhere in our recent or distant past that would indicate our financial foolishness. Let me ask you a question. Are you pleased with every dollar you ever spent in your life? Have you ever made mistakes? Do you ever wish you could push rewind and have a, have a mulligan and start over? Well, of course. This addresses the issue of making rash decisions, unwise decisions, unvetted decisions. And I think it'll help us not just in the, in the exact application of what Solomon's talking about to Rehoboam here, but it has broader implications in how we think about money. How to handle your own financial foolishness. My first proposition was how not to be financially stupid, but I, I decided to back that off a little bit. Number one, recognize foolish financial decisions. Solomon says to Rehoboam, listen, son, you need to recognize foolish financial decisions. This is verses one and two. My son, he goes back to my son, and we've said this over and over. He says, my son, a few verses later, he'll say, my son again. A few verses later, he'll say, my son, listen to me. It's just like having a conversation with a young child or even a teenager, they all have spiritual ADD. I was talking to someone recently who was um, trying to lure me into the debate about whether or not I believed in an ADD or ADHD or ADQ squared, whatever it is. Uh, here's the deal. I don't believe any one person has ADD. I think all of us do. If you're talking about a deficit of attention that you should give to the right things, we all fall into that category. This is what's happening here. You get distracted by other things. Latest research says that ADD or ADHD has nothing to do with a deficit. It has to do with being able to manage the fact that you're giving your attention to too many things, not just one thing. It's focus, it's attention. So what you find Solomon doing to his son Rehoboam all throughout this, this passage, it's like he's grabbing his chin and saying, my son, my son, look at me, remember me, quit looking at other things, focus, so when he says, my son, it's like, son, look up, listen. Then he says, if you have become surety for your neighbor, it just means another, have given a pledge to a foreigner, a stranger, someone you don't know. 
The issue here is that of becoming financially responsible for someone or being co-responsible for the debt of someone that you don't know, that you don't know if they have the means or the, the money to be able to pay it back. It's a notable, noticeable concern in the book of Proverbs. Just listen to this tour. Proverbs eleven fifteen. He who is a guarantor for a stranger, there is again, will surely suffer for it. But he who hates being a guarantor is secure. It's not talking about co-signing or being helpfully, financially responsible for your son, for your daughter, for a friend, for a family member who you know, who you know their, their background, who you understand that they have, have a job. This is talking about someone you don't know who scams you. Proverbs 17, 18. A man lacking in sense pledges and becomes a guarantor in the presence of his neighbor. Proverbs 20, verse 16. Take his garment when he, becomes, when he becomes surety for a stranger and for foreigners hold him in pledge. Proverbs twenty two twenty six. Do not be among those who give pledges, among those who become guarantors for debt. If you have nothing which to which, with which to pay, why should he take your bed from under you? In other words, why are you gonna end up paying for something for someone you don't know, who you haven't vetted, and it's gonna end up costing you your very subsistence? And then Proverbs 27, 13, take his garment when he becomes surety for a stranger and for an adulterous woman, hold him in pledge. He even mixes in the, the idea that this could have sexual implications. Here in our text, there's a series of conditional clauses. They describe the account of a foolish financial decision of a young man, could be a woman, who becomes financially responsible, it's called surety, for a stranger. Let's look at it more carefully. If you have become, verse one, surety for a neighbor, this is something that has already happened, better if it never happens, but he says, if, you, if it has happened, you, you've taken on an unwise debt for someone with whom you should not have, you hadn't vetted. I think he's saying prevention is better than correction, especially when it comes to finances. Having given a pledge, struck a deal with your hand, like a handshake for a stranger, literally a neighbor, anyone. And the stranger is, and the neighbor, by the way, are the same person. I'll, I'll just say he's saying you're, you're asking for trouble. This is talking about falling for Scams. Why would anyone do this? Think about this. Why would you do this? Two reasons. Unwise compassion, which is, we should be sympathetic for. Someone comes up and asks you for money and, and, and it breaks your heart. I, I, I think there's a certain benevolence in, in, in the heart of a believer where we can understand that. It's just unwise compassion or the promise of potential gain from the person who's borrowing the money. I'll pay you back at a higher percentage rate. I'll pay you back double. You'll gain in what I'm, what I'm borrowing to invest from. Said another way, it's just greed and selfishness. This doesn't mean, just as a footnote, this doesn't mean you should not be compassionate. 
I will never forget, I think we may have discussed this before, uh, when Kim and I were <clears throat> going out, we were walking into a sporting goods store actually in California. And as we were, uh, a lady stopped us and said, uh, she had a, a younger uh, son with her, she said, listen, uh, can I ask you for some help? We're hungry, we haven't been able to eat, and uh, can, 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 can we have some spare change, anything would help. And so my wife just took over. She just said, we would love to help. In fact, there's a Carl's Jr., a Hardee's, right across the street. Can we go over there? We would love to buy your dinner, buy your son's dinner, maybe get you a, a gift card for there to come back for breakfast tomorrow and tell you what makes our lives so valuable to us, the gospel. She says, no, I really just need the money. And so my wife engaged. Well, I, I thought you said you were hungry. I am hungry. Do, do, you, do, you, do you want to eat tonight? I do want to eat. Can we take you there to eat? No, that's not a restaurant I like. So there's a restaurant in, in California called Marie Callender's. And it was a little nicer than Carl's Jr. And she, she, so she, Kim just says, well, there's a Marie Callender's right there. Can we take you there? They have a full menu of everything you can eat. Oh, no, I don't, I don't like that either. And so I'm starting to feel uncomfortable. I'm the pastor who's supposed to have my act together. I'm going, I want to be somewhere else right now. And so she says, what, what would you use this money for? And she made a fatal mistake. And she said, well, I would just go to the grocery store and, and buy my groceries. And Kim said, there's a grocery store right over there. Can we take you there? We'll buy you a whole basket full of groceries. And Letty turned around, began to say things and use words I hadn't used since high school. I hadn't heard since high school, rather, uh, against us and walked off. That would not have been a wise investment. Now, let's change the scenario. If she had said, oh, I'd love, I'd love to have dinner with you. That would have been a fantastic opportunity. This passage is not saying don't be compassionate. It's saying be wise about it. Don't be scammed. On the other side, a motivation could be, well, what will I get out of this? This is the Nigerian scam, right? I am driven by greed and by wanting more, so I will invest in this or give my information, or share something so that I can get something for me. That is so against the biblical work ethic, which says, work for your food. Listen, you've heard it so many times, if, probably from your parents, if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. Again, this does not mean that you should ever, never rather, co-sign for anyone. There have been times that I've seen very wise people make co-signing decisions that have helped a person in incredible ways, especially within the body. That is a wise, a wisdom decision you should work out with your family, with your elders, with your pastors, to see if that's a wise decision. That's not forbidden in this passage. It's doing that with a stranger. Do you see that in the text? Someone you don't know, someone you can't bet, someone you, you, you're being scammed by. As a footnote to that, by the way, it's much more godly to just give something than it even is even to cosign. Proverbs 19, 17. 
One who is gracious to a poor man, listen to this, lends to the Lord and he will repay him for his good deed. God will repay the one who just is gracious and gives. Leviticus 25, verses 35 to 38 and chapter 28, verse eight, talk about the fact that in Israel, a godly man was to lend, if he was a lender, becoming the ultimate surety, being the person granting the the loaned money, to do that without any interest. Back to our sad tale, verse two. If you have become snared with the words of your mouth and have been caught with the words of your mouth, this was a contract. Um, They would handshake, they would make a verbal contract in front of someone else. There were no written contracts that we know of in this day except between kings and and, uh, treaties between nations. He illustrates this point by talking about the verbs of an animal caught in a trap. Twice it speaks of the words in your mouth. Not merely redundancy here, it underlines the power of verbal commitment and verbal agreement. You and I, yeses should be yeses, noes should be noes, according to James. We should be men and women of our word. Embedded in this verse is the importance of giving and keeping our word. Ever heard someone say, or ever said, hey, I know what I said, but I never signed anything, or you don't have anything in writing. Written contracts are very good wisdom, very important wisdom in our day. But for the record, a Christian's word is a written contract in the mind of God. He remembers it all. It is a notarized heavenly declaration when we make a verbal commitment. In this case, the commitment has gotten to the, gotten the committer in, in trouble, actually. Now, some of you won't remember this, and if you're, I don't know, below 40, 45, you may not remember this. Um, but for us gray hairs, do you remember the um, Columbia Record Club? where basically they said, we will send you, I remember doing this one time as a young man who was not very wise, we will send you 12 eight-track cassette, uh, cassette tapes, eight-track tapes. We'll send you 12 of them for the price of one. And then over the next 12 months, we're gonna send you this little thing. And if you'll send back that you, uh, that you don't want the, the, the next album or record, then, then um, uh, we won't send it to you. But if you do, we'll send it to you and you gotta pay for it. Well, that's a great scam for an 18-year-old who wants free music and um, uh, doesn't look at the mail ever (laughs) and get trapped. This was brought home to me in a profound way as a 17-year-old, and I never forgot it. I was selling chocolate candy bars for our high school wrestling team. They give you a case of candy bars. You sell them to whoever and you bring the money for the ones you sold and the candy bars that you didn't sold back and sell back and it was a pretty easy deal. Problem was, to put a case of candy bars in the room of a 17-year-old high school student who is wrestling and starving himself to death 
was not the wisest thing I've ever done. So every now and then I, I'll, have a, I'll have a candy bar and I'll pay it back later. I'll have another one and pay it back later. And then, then it came time to turn in the unsold candy bars, of which there were none, and the, the money which I was to have collected from the ones I sold. And I came to my ultimate guarantor, Larry Holland, the night before, and I said, Dad, look, I, I just, I don't, know what, I don't know what happened. I remember saying that I don't know what happened. <laughs> to which he said, Ricky, is that your story? Is that the one you want to stick with? You don't know what happened. Well, I kind of know what happened. I got confused, and, and it, then he, he sniffed me out pretty quickly. And not only did I have to pay that money back, my, my dad covered me for the moment, but I had to go in and tell the wrestling coach who I adored, who was a Christian example to me, a great mentor to me, I had to go in with my dad in tow and explain to him what I had done. One of the most humiliating moments I can ever remember. High school students, freshmen, sophomores in college, most of you are going to go on campus and one of the first things you're going to do is walk by a booth that has this title over it, Visa or MasterCard or American Express. I, have, I see parents nodding. They've seen these at the orientations. We'll give you a free t-shirt. Think about this. We will give you a free t-shirt if you sign up for our card and we'll give you $50 on that card that you can spend any way you want. It's a good deal, isn't it? And they draw you in to unwise credit card use on your first day of college. I think at the heart of this, Solomon is saying not just about surety for someone who can't pay back. He's saying, are you stopping to think about being trapped like, a, like an animal, trapped or caught with your word? Stuck. Word caught in verse 2 means to fall into a trap and to be stuck. Snared is the, the word used for uh, uh, foxes and coyotes. We still do trapping today. You snare them. It's the same word. Solomon's telling his son, recognize foolish financial decisions. Recognize them. Don't jump into them. And we can go on and on and on with examples today. What happens if you do, though? What happens if you fall for a scam? What happens if you get in financial trouble? What happens if you co-sign for someone who cannot pay it back? Come to our second way to handle your own financial foolishness. Number two, appeal to get out of financial trouble. Key word is appeal. Appeal to get out of financial trouble. So here's the scenario. Solomon's talking to Rehoboam. He's, at, he's playing out a scenario. You become surety for a stranger and now you're caught with their debt. What do you do? Verse three, do this then. I love it when the Bible says do this then. Pretty simple. My son, and deliver yourself. Literally appeal with yourself. Use yourself as collateral. Go with your integrity. Go with your word. Appeal. Deliver yourself. Go to the debtor. 
Go to the person that has loaned. Then he spells out the scenario. Since you have come into the hand of your neighbor or stranger, go, humble yourself, and importune your neighbor. Give no sleep to your eyes. Slumber to your eyelids. This is such a sad deception. This young man has made the financial mistake of becoming surety for a stranger, becoming a co-signer for someone he doesn't know, no vetting, no study, and now the person can't pay back, he's in trouble. His name is on the line. His finances are no longer under his control. He has now become collateral himself and his own goods for the person he didn't even know for whom he signed. He is now the financial slave of at least two people. The person who he loaned, who who he co-signed for, and the person who loaned the money. And he's also the financial slave of God because of his integrity of keeping his word. Remember Psalm 15? He swears to his own hurt and does not change. In other words, if my word's involved, I'm going to make it happen, make it through. The point here is that nothing enslaves you like a bad financial decision. And even worse is if you make a bad financial decision for someone you don't know well. Probably the worst scenario is with, in our days, with credit card debt. Some people who become enslaved with credit cards, they, they, they never recover. The point here is, what do you do when you do get in trouble? And the short answer is, you make an appeal. You make an appeal. You don't run. You, you, you don't refuse to answer the phone. You don't throw all the mail into the trash before you open it. You don't ignore those emails when you get them. You appeal. This is so counterintuitive. Financial trouble almost always makes you want to run and hide. Solomon tells his son to do just the opposite. Engage and appeal. Do this, son, and deliver yourself. Deliver yourself. Present yourself. Just as the power of your words can get you in trouble, Solomon is telling his son, the power of your words might get you out of trouble. Notice the words, go, humble yourself, importune, literally to to make persistent and urgent pleas. How serious is this? How, How urgent, how vigilant Verse four, give no sleep to your eyes nor slumber to your eyelids. In other words, don't put it off. Don't don't go into denial. Don't just ignore it and hope it goes away. Do something before you go to sleep. And then as someone who, who really enjoys hunting, this next phrase is really interesting to me. Deliver yourself like a gazelle from the hunter's hand, like a bird from the hand of a fowler. Now, I've done a fair amount of hunting and spent a lot of time in the woods. And the primary challenge for any hunter is the power of knowing that everything you're hunting wants to run from you. It's an animal's instinct to not die. 
and be eaten by you. He's trying to get away from the one hunting them. They have an instinct that the hunter is a predator and wants to take their life. That's the illustration used here for being in financial trouble. So the question is, did it work? Does it work? There's no answer provided here. I think it's interesting. He doesn't say this is always going to work. But he says this is going and appealing and saying, hey, can we work out a deal? Can I get on a payment plan? Whatever it means. But facing the problem, that's far better than running from the problem. The reason this is here is providentially, I think, mostly to scare us into preventing this happening more than giving us every footnote for what happens if if it does fall to us from getting in the mess in the first place. However, if you do have to appeal for mercy, you have a better chance of getting it than by running. This whole lesson highlights the power that money gains over us, that debt can wield over us. We live in a day where racking up debt, unsecured debt, is so easy, it's become commonplace. I hear ads on the radio all the time that are, that are really sad and troubling, basically saying, have you racked up so much credit card debt? If you'll call us, we can make you pay a fraction of that. Well, that sounds really good, doesn't it? But it's dishonest. It's not responsible. Turn for a moment to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew 16, verse 26. I really believe that the idea of money and wealth and materialism driving our value system distinct of, from us being driven by the power of God and his values was in the central focus when Jesus said in Matthew 16, 26, what will it profit? And that profit is a, is a financial term. What will a man truly be gained? What will it profit a man if he actually gains the whole world? What happens if you make all the best financial decisions in the world? Not the bad ones, but the good ones. What happens if you invest wisely? What happens if you make a lot of money? What happens if you get and get and accumulate and accumulate and invest and multiply and exponentially expands and you get everything you want? What if you got the whole world? And he forfeits his soul. What will a man give in exchange for his soul? Now, connect that to one more passage in 1 Timothy verse 6, chapter 6, rather. 1 Timothy chapter 6. One of the most misquoted verses in the whole Bible. Without question. I've heard unbelievers misquote this with regularity. I have heard believers misquote this irresponsibly. Verse 10, 1 Timothy 6.10. Tell me if this is right. 
For money is the root of all sorts of evil. Is that what it says? Say it with me. For the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. Money is not the problem. Being wealthy is not the problem. Let me tell you why. If you measure your life and your lifestyle, if you measure your, uh, your um, possessions against the standard of Matthew chapter 6, you are all unspeakably wealthy. Unspeakably wealthy. Why? Because Jesus says, if you, if you know where you're going to sleep tonight, and I think that's most of us, if you have the assurance of the next meal, which I think is most of us, if you have one set of clothes on your back, which I know is all of us, in God's economy, you're wealthy because there are a lot of people who don't have those three things. What's funny about riches and wealth is that almost everyone looks at someone else as rich. We have a team on a plane, literally right now, sitting down for a long flight, who in a few hours will land in Malawi, Africa. And I can assure you, you talk to them, when they come back, the greatest culture shock is not going there, it's coming home. Because there are people that they will meet who only have one set of clothes to wear. Who borrow clothes from someone else so they can wash their own. There are people there who got up this morning literally not knowing, not what they would eat, but if they would eat today. Those are the people to whom Jesus <laughs> addressed when he said, pray like this. Give us this day our daily bread. Have, have any of you ever prayed that? Have you ever been to a place where you thought, if God doesn't do something miraculous and give me daily bread, I'm not going to eat today? That's actually a lot of Africa, if not most of Africa. It's a lot of Asia. It's the majority of people in India. So back to our text, 1 Timothy 6.10. For the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. And some, listen to this, how serious this is. Some, by longing for it, for what? Money, loving money, longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. That's Paul's way of saying what Jesus said. What will a man give in exchange for, the, for his soul? What if you gain the whole world and you forfeit your soul? Many by longing for it have wandered away from the faith, pierced themselves with many griefs. It's about values. I think that's the heart of what Solomon is saying here to his son Rehoboam. Listen. Make wise financial decisions. Be gracious with your money. Be giving with your money. Be generous with your money. But don't be unwise with it. Don't be scammed with it. 
Recognize the scams in your life. It's okay to vet someone. It's okay to loan someone money. It's okay to co-sign with wisdom. And you don't co-sign if you could never pay back what that person owed, right? It's just being wise. And frankly, there's no... <laughs> I wish he had gone into greater detail to say, here's, here's a scenario that you should, here's a scenario you shouldn't. He, he doesn't give us that specificity, which is, I think, why we have leaders and elders and pastors and care group leaders and wise Christians around you to, just to pass this by someone and say, what, is this a good idea? Do you think this is okay? I got this email from Nigeria. I think that's a perfect setting to what the Lord would have us consider tonight at his table. As we approach communion in the Lord's table, I think in, in kind of wedding this with, with the Lord, the Lord has landed us in uh, Proverbs, it's just a, to say, how, how are my possessions, how is my bank account, how is my debt, how is my spending, how is my giving, how is my saving, how is my lending, how is my co-signing, how are my financial decisions reflective of my love for the Savior? This doesn't mean that you give everything away and you live like a pauper. It means that you're always ready to serve the Lord with whatever resource he's given you. It means we're aware and wise to the challenges of satanic attacks to take our resources away that could be used for kingdom purposes. It's being wise. 